Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Team Trump just took out its first New Hampshire TV ad against Nikki Haley. The lead starts right now. By this time next month, we will know if the polls are right. Do you hear that sound? That's the sound of us surging. This hour, I'm going to speak with Haley's biggest supporter in New Hampshire, where she has got to stop Trump if she wants to be president. Plus, Democratic Senator John Fetterman from Pennsylvania will be here, making headlines and waves in his party for backing Israel wholeheartedly, pushing border security, and saying he's not a progressive. What's going on? And the volcanic eruption creating warnings and wonder around the world. Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper. Off the top here, live images of that incredible volcanic eruption in Iceland, the largest in this region in the last two years. The volcano is spewing magma fountains nearly 100 feet high, releasing toxic gases. The bright orange lava flow is visible some two miles away. CNN's Fred Pleiken is trying to get as close as humanly and safely possible, and his live report is coming up in a few minutes. But things are also heating up in our 2024 lead with just 27 days until the first voters get their say. Cue the music, election music. Yes, yes. The sweet, sweet sounds of CNN's election season. It's an all-out blitz in Iowa today, where Republican presidential hopefuls are holding a dozen official campaign events on the schedule today. That includes former President Trump back in Iowa for the fourth time in less than a month. Today, Trump's campaign is projecting confidence, not only confidence that they're going to win the Iowa caucuses, but confidence that they will have the entire race secured by mid-March. A senior Trump campaign official says based on their internal data... They expect the former president to win the party's nomination around spring break, although they do caution those calculations could change if a rival does better than expected. And after months of going after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, it appears it's former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley who the Trump campaign is growing more concerned about. The super PAC supporting Donald Trump has just launched its first ad attacking Haley in the key early voting state of New Hampshire. CNN's Jeff Zeleny starts off our coverage today from Waterloo, Iowa, where Trump is holding a rally this evening with a behind-the-scenes look at the campaign machine hoping to propel the former president to a decisive victory in Iowa next month, a state he could not win eight years ago. Sometimes when you're leading by a lot, everyone says, oh, why should I go and vote? 
The margin of victory is so important. Donald Trump is back in Iowa tonight with that margin of victory squarely on his mind. But the outcome of the Iowa caucuses, now less than four weeks away, may depend less on Trump than the work being done on this makeshift assembly line inside his campaign headquarters. One box at a time. This is how Trump's team is trying to build a landslide, sending gold-stitched hats and carefully curated care packages to nearly 2,000 of their precinct captains. Look right here. Here's a personalized letter from the president. Brad Boosted is a volunteer and one of those precinct captains who speak on Trump's behalf on caucus night and agree to bring in 10 new supporters. In 2016, he supported Ted Cruz, who beat Trump here with the help of a stronger organization. Now, Boosted marvels at Trump's operation. Somebody's got to screw the lug nuts on the Cadillac, so the little jobs are the most important jobs. While Trump's extreme rhetoric often sounds the same in this campaign. When I'm reelected, we will begin and we have no choice, the largest deportation operation in American history. His organization is dramatically different this time, driven by a sophisticated data-driven effort to find Trump supporters who have never attended a caucus before. In the last three months, Trump has visited Iowa more than a dozen times, hitting all corners of the state in a highly targeted strategy for a frontrunner not resting on a commanding lead. From the moment you walk into a Trump event, the organization is apparent. Back at the campaign office, these commit to caucus cards are entered into a database. All right, I got you in there. So. Supporters are called within three days, which advisors say often didn't happen in 2016. We have the commit to caucus cards. Fill one out. There are people here who have not filled out one of these cards. We need all of you. Brenna Byrd, Iowa's attorney general and one of Trump's top supporters, warns against complacency. The polls don't matter. The one that really matters is caucus night, isn't it? An army of Trump surrogates is also descending on Iowa, holding small organizing events, hammering home the same message. Recruit 10 captains that can recruit 10 other people to commit to show up in caucus. My only worry is low turnout. With Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in a fight for second place, Trump is working to close down the 2024 primary on its opening night. He wants to run up the score so caucus night looks more like a coronation than a caucus. Jimmy Centers, a veteran of four Republican caucus campaigns in Iowa, said the Trump organization may overwhelm its rivals. They are quietly building a very tenacious and robust organization all across the state. I think that's going to be worth several points on caucus night. So some of the most important work happens when the former president's not here. That's precisely it. And it's been happening like that for eight years. So former President Trump returning to Iowa again for one uh, likely final visit of this calendar year, uh, also promising to be back early next year. Jake, the organization is night and day from what it was in 2016, back when many Trump supporters and even officials did not exactly know what a caucus was. That is an entirely different uh, case this year. Of course, he has many negatives against him as well. Many Republicans want to turn the page. That is where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been trying to gain ground. Nikki Haley as well. Jake, uh, many Republicans here have their eye on her. And she took notice of that today. She said, when all my rivals are attacking me, we must be doing something right. So really, the race for Iowa, Jake, is a race for second place. If Nikki Haley would defeat Ron DeSantis here, that would catapult her into New Hampshire. Either way, that race, everyone has their eye on. But again, that margin of victory, get a sense that the Trump campaign is worried about complacency. That's why he's coming back here tonight to Waterloo. Jake? All right, Jeff Zeleny in Waterloo, Iowa. Thanks so much.
So let's bring in Republican Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, who endorsed Nikki Haley in the Republican primary, a big get for her. Uh, Governor, thanks for joining us. So Ambassador Haley's in Iowa today, okay. where the latest CBS News poll finds her at 13% in third place there. Uh, what part of her message is not resonating with voters in that crucial state, even as some polls indicate she's surging in New Hampshire, your state? Yeah, sure. So understand the messages are always going to be a little bit different, a little bit, a little bit tailored to each state. Whether live for your die state, I think she has a great decentralizing government message that translates here. I think it's just a matter of kind of putting that message on the ground there. Everybody and all the Republicans and I want government out of their lives. They all want somebody who's going to be fiscally responsible and secure the border. These are the policies that we all agree on. Now, getting it done is, is really the difference maker. Who has that record of experience? So I think if she just spends more time in Iowa, she's going to get a lot of the similar results that she's got. Uh, she's gotten here. Um, and again, there's four or five weeks to go. People say that's not a lot of time. It's actually a ton of time. Poll numbers can move 10, 20 points in these last four or five weeks. And I have no doubt she's the only one with momentum uh, in, the, in the last couple of weeks and the only one that's going to carry it right until January 23rd. Well, let's talk about this uh, latest poll out of New Hampshire, which finds Trump uh, still in first place, 44 percent. Haley's at 29 percent. That's a big bump for her. Ron DeSantis is at 11 percent. Chris Christie at 10 percent. Everyone else in single digits. Do you think somebody needs to drop out uh, before uh, New Hampshire primary takes place for Nikki Haley to make up those 15 points in order to win the state? Uh, I don't think it has to happen. And I think what you're going to see is the voters are going to come around Nikki anyways. Chris Christie's voters have one mission, right, to make sure Trump's not the candidate, because that's Chris's mission. But now it's clear, un unfortunately, Chris is a great candidate, a great guy, great governor, but it, that's not the path. So they're all going to naturally come this way. DeSantis's voters, even some of the Trump voters are now realizing, well, Trump's not inevitable. We have a choice and it's really a binary choice. So I think naturally she's going to get enough of a bump with the voters. And maybe ultimately, you know, someone chooses to drop out. That's really their choice. I'm not going to force anyone to drop out. I can't do that, of course. I think the voters are going to kind of make that statement and make it clear where their, their support's going in those polls. And then we'll, we'll see what comes from that. What will it say about the state of the race if you, the top Republican in New Hampshire, a popular governor, if you endorse Nikki Haley and she does not win New Hampshire? Well, I don't think she's expect. I mean, no one has expected her up until this point to win New Hampshire, except me. Right. So Trump has to win Iowa and New Hampshire. I mean, that's the expectation. If he doesn't win these two states, he completely falls short of the national uh, expectations and narrative over the past year. So that would be a shocker in itself. So it should, nobody has to win the state. What we're really trying to do is just get a differentiator. It's going to be Trump and Haley going forward into her home state of South Carolina. And in a, I've always said in a one-on-one -on -one race, if you can get it there before Super Tuesday, and I think it's going to be there a lot sooner than that, in that one-on-one -on -one race, um, now, now folks have a binary decision. And the whole psychology of the inevitability of Trump, the psychology of choice, it all gets very, very different. And I think a lot more people engage uh, to, to Nikki Haley's benefit. The super PAC supporting Donald Trump is out with its very first ad against Nikki Haley running in New Hampshire. It accuses her of flip-flopping on the issue of raising her state's gas tax as governor. Take a listen. Nikki Haley promised. I will not. Not now. Not ever support raising the gas tax. Really? Not now? Not ever? Huh. Just 24 months later, high tax Haley flipped. Let's increase the gas tax by 10 cents. That's right. High tax Haley broke her promise. Let's increase the gas tax. Repeatedly backing higher taxes hurts families. New Hampshire can't afford Nikki high tax Haley. Now, we should note, obviously, the context. Governor Haley did say she would only raise the gas tax if it was offset 
by other tax hikes. So that's the context. That's right. That's right. But the, the ad, you know, TV ads, political ads are not known for their nuance and uh, context. If Trump voters are, are listening and believing these comments, how, how do you campaign against that? You don't worry about it. He's scared. That's actually the best part about this ad is that he, clearly Trump is scared. Clearly he knows momentum's on her side. She has a ground game that he doesn't have. The door knockers, the folks on the phone, the connection, she's answering questions or doing things that Trump is not and will not do over the next four or five weeks. So yeah, when he starts spending money on attacking uh, someone directly, you know he's very nervous about losing. Um, and look, when it comes to records, everyone knows Donald Trump's record. You know, as Republicans, we want that border secure. You know, we want um, the right fiscal policies in place. We wanted to drain the swamp. He didn't do any of it. And, and there's no, you don't even have to run ads on that. He just, he just didn't get it done. You know, when it's funny when you he was here over the weekend and he spent all this time saying this 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 horrible, you know, rhetoric uh, against illegal immigrants and all this sort of thing. And all he's doing there is trying to spur up his base. He's nervous. His base is going to leave him at this point. That's why he gets so extreme in some of these these speeches he's giving. And he does it around the, the immigration issue. Because he doesn't want people to remember, by the way, you were there for four years, buddy. You had a chance to secure the border. You had a chance to make Mexico pay for it as you told us you would. You didn't do any of it. So he's doing everything he can to distract from the fact, almost like he wasn't president. He was in charge for four years. And look what didn't get done. So he's, he's running scared. He knows that he doesn't have any momentum. Nikki does. He is. People are smart enough to know that that's very real. Um, and it isn't just a Chris Sununu endorsement. Nikki is absolutely a rock star on the campaign trail. People like her. They connect with her. They get excited with her. It's a whole different vibe here. And we're going to carry that, like I said, four or five weeks. Tough to go. Tough, tough haul, to be sure. But I think she's going to win this state pretty handily. All right. Governor Chris Inunu of the great state of New Hampshire, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Be good. Coming up next, a vote expected this hour to add even more pressure on the government of Israel to stop its assault in Gaza, or at least to change tactics. Plus, the attacks on ships in the Red Sea that could soon take a swipe at the global economy. And another look at the volcano erupting in Iceland. We're going to check in with the CNN team now on site. Stay with us. In our world lead now, moments ago, a vote on a consequential United Nations resolution was delayed until tomorrow, we're told, after intense negotiations and delays. The U.N. Security Council is trying to get the United States on board with the majority of members in calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The international outcry is growing, and Human Rights Watch accuses Israel now of using starvation as a weapon of war, which Israel denies. And now Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, who largely serves in a ceremonial role, says Israel is, quote, ready for another humanitarian pause. CNN's Will Ripley is on the ground in Tel Aviv for us. Will, how likely are Israel and Hamas to come to an agreement for another humanitarian pause for uh, relief to get in and for hostages and prisoners to be swapped? Uh, I'm being told it's very unlikely it's going to happen before Christmas, Jake, largely because of the the difference in what Hamas is looking for and what Israel is willing to do. They're talking about a humanitarian pause in exchange for the release of some 129 hostages. Hamas has said that those remaining hostages won't be released until, in their words, the war is over. There's a big difference between ending this war and a humanitarian pause to allow in desperately needed aid to Gaza. We saw those heartbreaking pictures over the weekend of people jumping on aid trucks, fighting over the few scraps of supplies that remain. Of course, there is additional damage being reported to everything from hospitals to churches. People are dying, including Israeli hostages accidentally shot over the weekend. So. 
the ceasefire is needed. But what that looks like and what is agreed to, that is the tricky part here. That's why you have the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, in the region. Uh, but he didn't leave, uh, certainly, with any deal uh, imminent. And so it's certainly something the U.S. working on very hard, Jake, but still a wide, wide divide between Hamas and Israel, which, of course, is unsurprising. We've seen that throughout this conflict. And, Will, we're seeing these new images of damage to a church in, in Gaza, a church complex where a mother and daughter uh, were killed, uh, allegedly by an Israeli sniper. Um, Christians in Gaza use these churches for shelter. Uh, what is the status of the surviving refugees in that church complex? And, and what is the IDF saying about these two women who were killed? It's a really heartbreaking story, Jake. Apparently, it was a mother and daughter, and one uh, was trying to carry the other to safety after this alleged sniper shooting that Israel denies. The military says they have evidence uh, based on their combat logs that they were not involved in this, but there are refuting accounts of that from people who were at the church. There were others who were injured. There are dozens of disabled people in that church right now that are facing a very difficult situation because in addition to those who were injured and the two women who were killed, killed. There are reports from the church that their generator was damaged. Their fuel supplies actually were damaged as well. Uh, potentially holes were shot in their, their fuel tanks. And of course, you know how scarce fuel is in Gaza at this stage. So a very heartbreaking story that was even addressed by Pope Francis, the pontiff delivering an address, calling it war and terrorism and praying for peace. But Jake, that prayer likely to be unanswered this holiday week, at least uh, that's what it looks like right now. Will Ripley in Tel Aviv for us. Thanks so much. Hundreds of miles south of Gaza, turmoil in the Red Sea, not seen in decades, as Iran-backed Houthi forces step up attacks on ships that they claim have ties to Israel. This has led to a major disruption in global shipping as companies such as oil giant BP reroute vessels all the way around Africa to avoid attacks. CNN's Natasha Bertrand and Richard Quest joining us now. Natasha, remind us who the, the Houthis are and, and how is the U.S. responding to these attacks? Well, Jake, the Houthis are basically one side of a civil war that has been raging in Yemen for the better part of a decade now. They are a rebel group that managed to seize control of many parts of Yemen beginning in 2014. And they now control a large part of northern Yemen, and they have been fighting a separate war against uh, Saudi Arabia over the last few years, a, a war that has abated over the last year because of a ceasefire. But they are also backed by Iran, which, of course, is Saudi Arabia's uh, arch nemesis in the region. So a lot of different powers at play here. But what the U.S. is doing at this point to try to deter uh, these ongoing missile and drone attacks by the Houthis on these commercial vessels is to set up an international coalition of maritime forces that will basically be bolstering the security in the Red Sea and, when necessary, escorting a lot of these commercial vessels so that they can transit safely through the southern Red Sea and up towards the Suez Canal, where, of course, so much of international trade and commerce uh, passes through on a daily basis. Now, the U.S. is saying that they are not necessarily going to escort these ships on a regular basis, nor are the other countries in the area. It's really just uh, an attempt to show that the international community, the international shipping industry, that they are there in case they need them, and also to try to show the Houthis that they are prepared to respond if they do these additional attacks in the future. But, of course, that uh, has not worked in the past. Over the last few weeks, the U.S. has responded to these missile and drone attacks, shooting down several of the missiles the Houthis have fired. Uh, it has not deterred them to date, Jake. Richard, what does this mean for global trade if ships have to reroute themselves all the way around Africa? Oh, it means about 
10 days, 15 days, two weeks round. There you are, eight and a half thousand miles to go from Singapore up through the Suez Canal to Rotterdam. 11,000 miles, or nearly 12 if you're going to go around the Cape. I spoke an hour ago to the CEO of Hapag Lloyd. One of his ships had already been hit by one of these drones. He said if it had been hit somewhere else, it would have been much worse for the vessel. It's going to be very difficult to protect these ships because there are so many of them. You've got to shoot down all the drones and it becomes a long, costly, expensive affair. And so that's your economic balance, um, Jake. Do you send these ships around, which will create supply chain issues, likely raise the prices and certainly increase inconvenience? Or do you take the risk up the Suez Canal route, which frankly, no one seems to be prepared to do at the moment? At the second, I'm afraid to say the Houthis have the upper hand. And Natasha, we know that the U.S. has responded by launching strikes at weapons depots in Syria and Iraq. Are Pentagon officials discussing a more substantial response to deter these attacks by the Houthis to begin with? Well, look, the Pentagon will always tell you that nothing is off the table in terms of a response. However, the U.S. has been extremely reluctant to bomb the Houthis directly and their infrastructure. Also, because there are several political sensitivities at play as well. As I mentioned earlier, Saudi Arabia and the Houthis, they reached a a very fragile truce uh, just last year. And the U.S. played a very important role in that truce. And so the U.S. does not necessarily want to see a new conflict reopened in Yemen against the Houthis, as well as, of course, many Arab nations. Uh, they don't necessarily want to see these conflict, these, uh, co- this conflict uh, escalate either. And so the U.S. does not necessarily want to open a new front here. But, you know, many critics are pointing out that there may need to be some additional kinetic action in order to deter uh, mm. their attacks in the future because they're just not letting up with ballistic missiles, anti-ship missiles, and increasingly uh, sophisticated equipment, Jake. All right, Richard Quest and uh, Natasha Bertrand, thanks to, to both of you. Coming up next, the mother of 19-year-old Dama Levy. You might not recall her name. You do recall her image, I'm sure, because what happened to her is unforgettable. Her mother came here to the U.S. with a message that she needs the world to hear. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
And back with our world lead, you've probably seen that horrific video of 19-year-old Naama Levy dragged by her hair into the back of a Jeep at gunpoint on October 7th simply because she's Jewish. Shows the moments after Hamas terrorists abducted her and in all likelihood raped her as evidenced by the blood on her pants and where it was on her pants. CNN's Bianca Goladriga spoke with her mother, who says time is running out. My voice may be soft when I speak right now, but the scream is inside me and and um, and I don't hear the voices of the world loud enough responding to the scream. My daughter has been kidnapped by Hamas. Can you can you even begin to imagine that? It's one of the most recognizable images from the horrors of October 7th. 19-year-old Nama Levy dragged from the back of a jeep at gunpoint by Hamas terrorists. Her pants visibly bloodied, her ankles cut. For her, time is running out. You know, every day is harder because, you know, she's more vulnerable to whatever is happening there and to what's inflicted on her. The thought of what else could be inflicted on her daughter has led Dr. Ayelet Levy-Shahar to travel to New York. She's hoping to put more pressure on women's rights organizations like UN Women, who waited nearly two months to condemn the sexual violence committed by Hamas, despite the mounting evidence. Do you feel let down by these organizations? Not only their moral lapse in not speaking out, do you think that by waiting so long, they endangered Nama's life even more? It wasn't timely, it wasn't enough, and that did put her, it does put her in more danger because time is passing by and she's not out. And then, you know, I want to just stay home and by the door and by the phone and wait for that call and open the door and go out and get her. You know, that's all I want. I don't want to travel anywhere, but I'm doing it because I think this is, I think the, the United States has the most power here and I want to influence whoever I can. Like many other families of hostages, Levi Shahar is also disappointed in what they view as an ineffective role played by the International Committee for the Red Cross. While acknowledging the organization's principle of impartiality, families believe more aggressive statements, like this one from the ICRC president last week demanding access and the release of hostages, could have put more pressure on Hamas. I've met with the Red Cross and the Red Cross president. I do understand there's a complexity in how they work and how they achieve their mission. They say they don't have the cooperation on the other side by the Hamas, by the, by the ones who kidnapped. So maybe someone can. Maybe the, you know, the UN should come out and say ICRC cannot do their assignment. Why do you think they're not doing that? Good question. Why are they not doing that? A day before her trip to New York came the shocking news from the IDF. Its soldiers had mistakenly killed three hostages who had escaped or been abandoned by their captors. You know, I was shocked. The fear that I feel all the time just got worse at that point. And, and when I heard this, it broke my heart. I know the parents of, the, of those, you know, at least some of those hostages that were killed. It's horrible. It's a horrible tragedy. Of course, everyone can recognize the video, the horrific video of Nama on October 7th. I know for you it's really important for that video to be shown. C can you explain why? You know, for me it's of course beyond upsetting, and I can't even watch it in continuity. 
But I think it's so important for the world to see this is what happened to my daughter. It's a short film that is totally un does not represent anything about her except the cruelty of those moments, the moment where our lives just stopped and froze. And it's been, it's been October 7th ever since. Levi Shahar wants the world to know who her daughter really is, a young, determined, fun-loving girl who sought peace with her Palestinian neighbors and loves Pink, specifically the song Cover Me in Sunshine. Cover me in sunshine. Now I listen to it all the time, and I sing it to her, you know, I say, I, I tell her, the world's been spinning since the beginning and everything will be all right. And I try to believe that myself, you know. Bianca Goladriga, CNN, New York. Our thanks to Bianca Goladriga for that report, and we are going to continue to cover the hostages, American and Israeli, until the end of this story. Hopefully, they return. Israel's military operation in Gaza has created deep divisions here in the United States, especially among younger voters who also take issue with President Biden's handling of the war. Democratic Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania has strong feelings about this all, and he'll join me next. In our politics lead, it is a critical moment for President Biden and Democrats as the war in the Middle East is causing deep divisions, particularly among younger voters, and a fight is raging on Capitol Hill over immigration. Joining me now to discuss is Democratic Senator John Fetterman from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It's good to see you, sir. Thanks for joining us. Um, Let's start with President Biden. We see in today's New York Times Siena College poll If the presidential election were held today, Biden would likely lose to Donald Trump. Why do you think that is? And do you think that the party should consider nominating someone else to be the Democratic Party's presidential nominee? Well, I mean, it doesn't really mean much to me because the the election is for nearly a year ago. And uh, Joe Biden already beat uh, uh, Trump in Pennsylvania. And that's what I really talk about how they're, uh, he's going to absolutely win in Pennsylvania. And, you know, I, I, I understand that there's kind of a, a division between the younger voters between uh, Israel and, and Gaza. And, you know, I really believe the, the president is on very much on the right side of that. And sometimes, you know, you may alienate some, some of some voters, but it's really most important to be on the right side on that. I mean, that's, that's where I'm at. I want to get to Israel in a second, but first, I know you're eager to talk about the proposed sale of U.S. Steel, which is headquartered in Pittsburgh, to Japan's largest steelmaker. Do you think that the deal should be blocked? Do you think that selling U.S. Steel to a Japanese company uh, poses a risk to the national security of the United States? Yeah, no, I, I'm actually outraged by it. it. It absolutely is. I live across the street from from the mill, and I used to have a really great relationship with the uh, the, the management. In fact, they would even, you know, over any simple kind of press release or anything, they would give me a heads up, and they never mentioned to me at all. And of course, they never checked in with the union. So that, to me, that tells two things: one, uh, that they don't have to care what happens to the union, and and two. Uh, with my reputation and my uh, 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 my um, 
reputation. Uh, and, you know, so from my perspective, uh, there must be one of two things that they don't ever have to care about us much longer and that they must have a very, very gold uh, kind of parachute here as well. Uh, let's go back to talking about Israel and the divisions in the Democratic Party, particularly among uh, young voters uh, when it comes to Israel's war against Hamas. Seventy-two percent of young voters, according to this new poll, disapprove of how President Biden is handling the Israel-Hamas war. You've been very vocal in your full support for Israel. I see the Israeli flag behind you in your office there. You've been very clearly arguing that Hamas bears responsibility for the tragedy of what's going on in Gaza. Why do you think so many younger people, especially in your party, see it differently? I, I really, I really don't, I really don't know. Uh, I, I do know that a lot of people are getting their perspective from TikTok, and I think if you're kind of getting your perspective on the world on TikTok, it's going to tend to be kind of warped or not reflective of the the history and, and actually the way things absolutely are. And what is very clear is is that Hamas started this, and they actually broke the the ceasefire, and they attacked uh, and murdered uh, babies, children, women. Uh, attacked a, a music uh, a concert and everything. It's 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 outrageous. And from from now on, um, it's been very clear that that Israel would very much want there to be peace. But they've made it very clear that after October seventh, that that's just not possible. So long as Hamas is allowed to uh, exist on immigration, uh, which is a big uh, issue going on in the Senate right now, you recently said, "quote I hope Democrats can understand." that it isn't xenophobic to be concerned about the border, unquote. And even though you did run for lieutenant governor and senator, uh, as a progressive, you're now rejecting that label. What would you call yourself? Uh, I would just call myself a, a Democrat, and I believe that I'm on the right side of issues, whether that's being very pro-choice, maybe that I believe that is being pro-union, and if I believe that's for pro uh, Israel on that as well, too. Uh, there's absolutely uh, different kinds of opinions in, in the Democratic Party. And, and I've always been very clear that I'm going to stand on the right side of what I believe it is. And I've been very upfront on that as well, too. And, and I really have been able to find anybody that can say there's not any kind of an issue right now on the border that has around 270,000 people being encountered on the border just in one month. And to put that in perspective, as I've said before, that's the side of Pittsburgh. And if roughly the, the size of Pittsburgh is showing up in the border, um, if that's what you, you need to say, that's fine, that, that's not really an issue uh, as a progressive, then I guess that that's why I wouldn't be a progressive. But I have remained and you know, will always be very, very uh, pro-immigration, perhaps as much as anybody in there. Before you go, sir, uh, it's uh, it's been nice talking to you. How is your health? Obviously, uh, you had the stroke, uh, you had a hospitalization period. Your recovery seems to be going well, as far as I can tell uh, from this interview. But, but how are you doing physically and, and uh, in terms of all your recovery? Uh, any, any better, and I'd have gold bars in my mattress. Doing great. <laughs> all right. Uh, Thanks for a, asking. A reference to uh, New Jersey uh, Senator uh, Mr. Menendez, who I know you've been calling for him to to leave. Uh, Democratic Senator John Fetterman of the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, thank you so much. Hope we can talk again soon. Okay, thank you. Some incredible images out of Iceland. CNN crews just got within a mile of the erupting volcano spewing magma and toxic gas. We're going to check in with CNN's Fred Pleitkin, who's on the ground next. 
In our world, lead, uh, you're looking right now at some live pictures of a volcano erupting in Iceland. This finally awakened yesterday after weeks of warnings and earthquakes. The Reykjanes uh, Peninsula right now has it all. Magma fountains, a two-and-a-half-mile crack in the earth, toxic gases. But unlike most volcanoes in Iceland, this one is not far from population centers or the international airport or a major power plant. CNN's Fred Plyken just arrived near the eruption site. Fred, what are scientists saying about the risks here? Hi there, Jake. Well, they certainly are taking this extremely seriously. In fact, I was uh, within about, I'd say, less than a mile of where all this is erupting. But what you can see over my left shoulder, that massive eruption that's uh, taking place. And there's a big amount of activity still down there because uh, one of the things that the Icelanders are doing is they're trying to build a berm to protect the geothermal power plant that's out there. They're obviously still very concerned about a town that's there called uh, Grindavik, which has already been evacuated, but there's a crack going right through that town as well. The lava hasn't erupted there yet, but nevertheless, a situation that is very concerning. And the other thing that you mentioned, this volcano is essentially erupting, or this volcanic eruption is taking place right between the capital of Iceland and the main airport of Iceland. The Icelanders themselves seem pretty relaxed about it so far, but they do say that there could be disruptions in air travel. Nevertheless, this is a massive spectacle of nature that we're able to witness here. There have been huge fountains of lava gushing from this volcanic eruption. I want to take a look at some of these images. The Arctic night illuminated as the earth breaks apart from the fissure bursts its molten core. Weeks of earthquakes led to this display of our planet's fire and force. Following a volcanic eruption, there's always uh, high levels of toxic gases. The main concern in Iceland now is the distribution of this with the wind. It's never possible to say exactly when or if a volcano like this one near the town of Grindavik will erupt. Officials took no chances, though, evacuating the population after weeks of tremors. Thousands of shakes were felt in November, and all knew what they could bring. Thankfully, none were in Grindavik town when the volcano, around two miles away, finally did erupt. This crack in the surface of our world, close to four kilometers or more than two miles long, spewing lava. This is as close as the authorities are going to let us to the volcanic eruption in the southwest of Iceland. It's a so-called fissure eruption. That means an eruption along a crack that can be several miles long rather than on a volcanic cone. Now, one of the good things about these eruptions is that actually usually they don't spew ash into the atmosphere very high, which can and has in the past disrupt air travel internationally. Of course, in a place like Iceland, that can have massive effects. Previous eruptions in Iceland have lasted weeks or even months. Unfortunately for the inhabitants of Grindavik, it's impossible to say how long this will last. In the town of Grindavik, the earthquake damage is clear. The lava may follow. If this uh, activity goes on, then the big question is, uh, uh, will Grindavik uh, be inhabitable in the long run? Whether people can ever move back here depends on a new set of geological circumstances being created right now. Geological circumstances, Jake, and that's exactly what we're seeing created right in front of our very eyes right now. One of the interesting things that uh, some folks from Iceland told me is that this is an area that used to have a lot of volcanic activity, but it's been dormant for about 800 years. However, in the past two years, there have been 
four major eruptions, none of them bigger than the one that you're seeing above my shoulder right now, Jake. Incredible. Fred Plyken, stay safe. Thanks so much. Right now, approximately 5,000 migrants are waiting by a Texas bridge to be transported for processing, but that's just in one city. In Eagle Pass, border officials say more than four times that were detained overnight. The overwhelming situation at the border is next. From executive producers Park Chan-wook and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the judge's ruling that could blow the cover off of Jeffrey Epstein's little black book. Last night, the court ordered the release of more than 150 alleged associates and victims of Epstein, the convicted pedophile found dead in his jail cell. The six-year-old case leading to this new ruling. That's ahead. Plus, face-to-face, families of hostages currently being held by Hamas getting a chance to confront Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's been criticized for ignoring their plight and not focusing enough on getting the hostages home. One of those families will join me this hour. And leading this hour, the astonishing surge of migrants at the Texas border. Border officials say more than 23,000 migrants were put in U.S. custody overnight, detained from several different parts of the U.S.-Mexico border. CNN's Rosa Flores starts us off this hour from Eagle Pass, Texas, where operations at a railway bridge have been suspended because of this migrant surge. Rosa, how is this impeding migrant processing and surrounding border towns? Well, it's a bottleneck and it is impeding lawful trade and travel while illegal crossings continue. Let me show you the lay of the land here, Jake, because it'll give you an idea. That railway that you were talking about, this is the railway just over my shoulder. That is closed to lawful trade. And over here to my right, you see this other bridge. There's two bridges here in Eagle Pass, Texas. This is one of them. There's another one that is closed. And you see that the uh, this is the trade coming in from Mexico. You see the long lines. Well, there's more long lines, again, because of its closure. Now, the Biden administration has uh, decided to close several ports of entry and reassign those agents to process migrants. Now, I want you to look over my shoulder because you'll see that there are thousands of migrants here waiting to be transported for immigration processing. I can tell you that from here I can see women and children. At last check from uh, sources on the ground and from the sheriff, about 5,000 migrants were waiting here in Eagle Pass, Texas. Now, in the last 24 hours along the U.S. southern border, about 12,600 migrants were apprehended. And just to give you a sense, on December 8th, I interviewed U.S. Border Patrol Chief Jason Owens, and he said that at that point in time, 7,000 migrants had been apprehended within a 24-hour time period. So that gives you a sense of just the overwhelming number of migrants that have crossed who are waiting to be processed. Now, you were talking about the bottleneck, Jake, when it comes to the number of migrants who are actually in custody. So when we talk about these custody numbers, the 23,000 number that you were referencing, That doesn't include all the people that you see behind me. These individuals have not been processed yet. And from talking to the Border Patrol chief, he told me, Jake, capacity is 10,000. That's how much they can actually hold. And right now they're holding 23,000. 
migrants. And Rosa, Texas's legislature and, and the Republican governor, Greg Abbott, are, are certainly talk, taking this immigration matter into their own hands with a series of border bills, one of which makes crossing illegally into Texas a state crime. Some Democrats are calling this a show me your papers bill. How are Texans reacting to the new law? Well, there's a lot of communities in this state who are, are in fear that this will lead to racial profiling. Uh, there are communities who are holding know your rights laws to make sure that brown people in this state know their rights whenever they're stopped by local police, because that's the thing. This new law allows local police to enforce this state law which made it a state crime for anyone to cross the border illegally. But here's the thing, Jake, this law also says that anyone who is in the, in the, in the state illegally has an illegal presence is also in violation of this law. And that's the big question. How do police officers know what an illegal present person looks like? Now, some individuals who I've talked to here in the state of Texas say that they are going to start carrying their passports. And that's the case of Ramona Casas. Take a listen. Make sure you have your passport and ID when you're driving or when you are outside of the streets. Ramona said that that was the advice that she was giving everybody she knew who was Hispanic, who was in fear in her community. Now, I can tell you that the ACLU uh, has already filed a lawsuit against SB4, and we just received a statement from Governor Greg Abbott, Jake, and he says that he's ready to take it to the Supreme Court. All right, Rosa Flores and Eagle Pass. Uh, Texas, thanks so much. Uh, let's bring in Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas. He's part of at least 20 other Democratic lawmakers calling on U.S. Attorney Merrick Garland to stop Texas's new border law before it goes into effect in March. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. So your Democratic colleague, Henry Cuellar, is not on that list. And his district neighbors yours yesterday on the show, on the lead, he told me that he believes the Texas border law is unconstitutional, but he wants stricter border policies anyway. Take a listen. Even I'm frustrated by the lack of activity or more work that can be done by the federal government. Why are we allowing so many people in when at the end of the day, they're not supposed to be here uh, according to immigration law? It does seem like everyone's frustrated and it has been that way for a long time. Uh, are progressives uh, ready to make any concessions to Republicans to get some sort of a accommodation and, and border bill passed? Well, I think first, Jake, you're right. It's clear for the last dozen years or more, people have been frustrated, mostly with the fact that Congress has not been able to come together and do comprehensive immigration reform, which would help prevent a lot of the scenes that you see at the U.S.-Mexico border now. I think a big problem that many folks have, including myself, is that we're, we're absolutely willing to sit down and negotiate on these provisions, uh, but you shouldn't be trading uh, border restrictions or bad border policy for foreign aid. That is something that we've not seen before. So if there's going to be a negotiation on the border, which there should be, uh, it should be policies related to the border for things like giving uh, DREAMers and DACA recipients a path to legalization, uh, overhauling our visa system. That has not been part of the conversation on the supplemental aid bill at all. Uh, and then when you look at what Governor Abbott is doing, that is a very dangerous racial profiling bill that really harkens back to the 1950s when you had something called Operation Wetback that resulted in hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million Mexican-Americans who were citizens, they were American citizens who were deported to Mexico back then. Uh, and so Governor Abbott 
uh, is usurping federal power and has just signed into law uh, a very dangerous bill. So the border crisis is a big issue, obviously, uh, especially coming up in the 2024 presidential race. Another Democratic progressive, Congresswoman Adelia Ramirez of Illinois, told CNN that she can't defend the concessions that Democrats and President Biden might be willing to give Senate Republicans on immigration in order to get this foreign aid package bill. Sources tell CNN that some current proposed policy changes include uh, turning back migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border without a chance to declare asylum, uh, expanding a fast-track deportation procedure uh, to include more undocumented immigrants, and raising the credible fear standard for uh, asylum seekers. Uh, are, there, are, are those provisions ones that, that you have an issue with? Yeah, absolutely. And most especially because, again, there's nothing in return. You're not getting any kind of visa overhaul. You're not getting more work permits. You're not getting legalization for dreamers. All of the things that had been previously negotiated uh, by Republicans and Democrats when it comes to immigration. And remember, as you know, Jake, these are longstanding, generational long policies that have existed in the United States regarding asylum. So I know that when People see visuals of a lot of people in the border. There is a very strong temptation to, to, to say, look, just do something, fix it, get it out of here. But you got to remember, these are generational long uh, laws about asylum and seeking refuge that get to the very character of the United States of America as a nation of immigrants. Yeah, I mean, I've been covering uh, the attempt to pass immigration reform now for, for literally decades, uh, and it does not seem as though... Uh, there is enough give when it comes to uh, the effort of House Republicans, especially historically when it comes to immigration reform. Um, and you, you keep noting that, that these concessions would not include anything in return, uh, such as uh, for the Dreamers or, or uh, visa holders. What do you say to conservatives who say, look, your party controlled the House, the Senate and the White House in Biden's first two years as president? And yeah, some of the senators uh, were are in the Democratic Party are, are you know moderate to conservative Democrats, but you could have passed something. Well, even that was tough because uh, I would tell them that there's something called the filibuster that requires 60 votes that made it very difficult to do that. Uh, we came close in 2013, 2014, when a bipartisan group passed a comprehensive bill in the Senate with about 68 votes, and then a Republican speaker, Speaker Boehner, refused to put it on the floor of the House for a vote. But also part of the, a big part of the reason that it's so tough to, to sincerely legislate on immigration is because you've got the leader of the Republican Party who is parroting Nazi and Hitler in talking about how immigrants are poisoning the blood of the nation. That makes it hard for any Republican who actually wants to solve the issue uh, of the border, border security and immigration to go out on a limb now and do something to earnestly fix it rather than just following Donald Trump down that dark rabbit hole uh, of parroting Nazis. Well, as long as you, you mention it, uh, as you know, Donald Trump uh, a couple times over the weekend uh, referred to uh, immigrants from South America, Africa and Asia. He did not mention Europe. South America, Africa, and Asia as, quote, poisoning the blood of our country, which it's not hyperbole. That does very directly echo uh, Adolf Hitler's uh, language um, before World War II, before the Holocaust. What kind of effect does that have in the Latino community in Texas? And the reason I ask is because we heard a lot of language like that before the Tree of Life synagogue shooting and the El Paso Walmart shooting, uh, both of which were inspired by this 
sickening, ridiculous, uh, great replacement theory that Jews are bringing in Latinos to replace the white population in this country. It's completely false. It's nonsense. But this great replacement theory, which has been echoed by Republicans in, in, in Congress and, and Donald Trump, too, uh, has inspired uh, literally killers uh, of Jews and Latinos. And I'm, when Donald Trump says that, poisoning the blood of our country, do you hear about that from constituents? Do people talk to you about it? Yeah, even in the last few days, as I've been out in public at restaurants and so forth, people have mentioned it to me un, unprompted. Uh, I think that it, it sends a, a kind of shock, a fear through people uh, because they hear it and they know that, that it is profoundly dangerous and different from what they're used to hearing from political leaders. And I think it's not just Latinos. I think Jews hear that, Muslims hear it, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and others. Uh, and they get the same kind of fear and sense. And, and I have said, and you know, you know, sometimes you know, you you try to kind of keep yourself in check because you don't want to be too alarmist, and you you don't want to be you don't want to exaggerate or use hyperbole. But I believe that if Donald Trump is elected again as president, we're essentially on the doorstep of fascism. Yeah, we've come a long way. I know people, Democrats, have their issues with George W. Bush, but. I mean, he did used to talk all the time about how family values don't stop at the Rio Grande uh, River. And uh, as foreign as it might seem, and foreign in quotes, quote unquote, as it might seem, um, to think about today, there was literally a, a, like a Latino night at the Republican National Convention in the year 2000. It's impossible to imagine such a thing today. That's for sure. Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas, uh, thank you so much. It's been nearly three weeks since Hamas released any of the hostages from Gaza that they so cruelly seized on October 7th. Today, families of those still in captivity, more than 100 of them, I met with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, a father who attended that meeting, will join me next. Uh, just hours ago, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with frustrated family members of the many hostages still being held captive by Hamas and other groups in Gaza. They're demanding a deal for their loved one's release. Earlier today, Israeli President Isaac Herzog suggested Israel was open to a new pause in fighting, saying, quote, Israel is ready for another humanitarian pause and additional humanitarian aid in order to enable the release of hostages. And the responsibility lies fully with Hamas chief Yahya Sinwar and the leadership of Hamas, unquote. This follows Saturday's protest where thousands gathered in Tel Aviv after the revelation that three Israeli hostages were accidentally and tragically shot and killed by the IDF in Gaza. I'm joined right now by Ruby Khan. He's the father of Itai Khan. His son is one of the Israeli-American citizens still being held hostage uh, by Hamas in Gaza. Uh, Ruby, thanks so much uh, for joining us again. I'm sad it's uh, under these circumstances. You attended that meeting today with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, tell us what happened. Yeah, it's been 74 days. Uh, we had a meeting with the Prime Minister in a more intimate setting uh, where it was possible actually to have a constructive conversation, Q&A, where we conveyed to him our concerns after 74 days where in our case, you know, we still do not have sign of life and reminding all U.S. citizens listening to us today, there are eight U.S. hostages being held against their will. Christmas is coming up. I hope that everybody is playing 
for us that we will be reunited with our family soon. Um, the Prime Minister, he was attentive and he was understanding of the anguish that we are going through. And he committed his uh, utmost ability to do as much as he can for the release of all the hostages. We conveyed to him that it is his responsibility. It happened on his watch, so mm -hmm. to say. And he recognizes that fact and he is doing as much as he can and pledged to, to continue to do as much as he can for the release of the hostages alive. The Israeli government has, has stated that it has two, two goals. One is the destruction of Hamas. The second is the release of all the hostages. Are you concerned that the prime minister's focus on destroying Hamas has gotten in the way of releasing all the hostages, has gotten in the way of, of getting your son back uh, safely uh, and alive? So, Jake, you know, there's uh, important tasks for the state of Israel, and they are urgent tasks, and we feel the families that this is urgent. But I think the Prime Minister tried to convey the message that the important uh, tasks for the state of Israel need to be accomplished as well. And we, of course, you know, focused him on the fact that uh, the people that have been taken hostage were taken uh, as mostly civilians, you know, that were living in their homes and taken against their will. And that is the responsibility of the state of Israel to bring them back alive. And it's been yeah. 74 days. So uh, Friday, obviously, uh, a horrible tragedy when uh, Israeli troops accidentally killed three hostages. Um, has the IDF, has the Netanyahu administration given you any assurances that they are taking steps to make sure that that never happens again? It's a tragedy, Jake. I don't know how to explain to you the emotions that we had when we were looking at the television and looking at those soldiers and then understanding that they did all they could to identify themselves as hostages and still, uh, you know, they were that close, you know, that close of making it. And at the beginning, uh, the IDF did not release all of the names of the deceased. And, you know, any phone call that you get, like, mm -hmm. it jumps you and your heart goes pounding and, and you just want to see who it is. And it was, I can't describe it. it it's, it's more than hell. Like, it, it's a little bit more than that. Your son is a, is a dual Israeli-American citizen. Do you think there's more that, that President Biden and the Biden administration and the U.S. government in general could be doing to help secure his release? Well, as you know, Jake, last week well, we were in Washington and all the families didn't meet the president, Secretary of State Blinken. Uh, we all know that Director Burns is, is somewhere in Europe on this as well. So I think President Biden reinforced his commitment to this topic and gave us his assurance that even with the holiday seasons coming up, this is not a topic that can wait and will not wait. And the United States is doing everything that it can to bring our loved ones back home. 
But there's always the question about uh, levers and what levers can be used and where's the international community and what can be done more. And that was some of the questions that we asked the president as well as the other meetings that we had last week. And it's an open discussion. Yeah. Ruby Chen, uh, thank you so much. Um, best regards to your wife. Uh, and um, I hope that uh, you'll be back soon with Itai next to you talking to us about his recovery from this horrible ordeal. Thank you so much for your time. I'd like to ask again for people to uh, play. Uh, it's Christmas time, time of miracles. We're looking for a miracle. So please continue to think about us and keep us in your thoughts. I know we will on my show. Thank you, Ruby. Thank you, Jake. President Biden is, of course, a key ally of Israel. But today there is new evidence that the American people do not approve of his actions so far when it comes to this war. Stay with us. Our 2024 lead, cue the music. Yes, that's my jam. Nikki Haley's campaign said Donald Trump is, quote, getting scared in New Hampshire. This in response to a new attack ad from a pro-Trump super PAC launched today. Haley's campaign saying, quote, Trump is running false negative ads against Haley. It looks like Donald Trump is getting nervous. Trump is recycling the same debunked lies peddled by Ron DeSantis, another sign of his desperation, unquote. Let's discuss with our panel. And Alice, according to that recent poll, Nikki Haley is gaining ground on Trump in New Hampshire. She's at 29%. Trump's still far ahead at 44%, but that is within a reasonable uh, distance. Uh, this is according to CBS poll. Do you think that Trump is getting scared, as Nikki Haley's, Nikki Haley's campaign suggests? Uh, by all indications, yes, he is. I mean, you don't put a target on someone's back unless you see them as a threat to yourself. And clearly, she's got a target on her back. I'm old enough to remember when Donald Trump pushed all of his attacks on Joe Biden because he thought he was the by far and away GOP frontrunner. And now he's... That was like five days ago. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. But now, obviously, he's yeah. realizing, oh, she, she has momentum. She has uh, support, certainly in New Hampshire with Governor Sununu. And she also uh, has a good message on some of these issues that are going to galvanize some of these disaffected Republicans and people that have left uh, Donald Trump and are looking for alternatives. And Nikki Haley's in a good spot. Obviously, he sees she's someone that he needs to, to be attacking. Now, Governor Sununu uh, of New Hampshire, popular Republican governor who's endorsed Nikki Haley, he kind of had a, a theory of the case that reminded me a little bit, and I don't want to push this analogy too much, but reminded me a little bit of the uh, Obama in 2008 in the sense that people were behind Hillary 100% until they saw that Barack Obama actually could win after he won Iowa, and then they were able to peel off um, a little bit in New Hampshire, though Hillary won there, but mainly in South Carolina, uh, Sununu was not invoking Obama, but it right. does remind me that once somebody becomes a more credible candidate, they, they, people who are behind the front runner sometimes take another look. They, they, they can. Uh, as an American, I'm not a Republican, of course, but I hope they do. Right? I just I, th I don't think Trump's been good for his party, much less for our country. But the other thing that has to happen is what happened for Joe Biden. When he emerged in South Carolina, all the other moderates in the race dropped out and endorsed him. Uh, Pete Buttigieg did, Amy Klobuchar did, Beto O'Rourke did, and they coalesced around Biden. Uh, the the, the non-Trump candidates have to coalesce around somebody. And it does look like Haley's far and away uh, the strongest one. If, if I could give her free advice, Trump is running his pack. He's running ads attacking Haley for allegedly flip-flopping. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, this is a guy, free advice, Governor Haley. This guy's had three wives, three political parties, three positions on abortion. He's not a guy. He more flip-flops than Simone Biles. Come on, hit back, Governor. Yeah. Hit him. And I think a, a good ar argument also to be made is Nikki Haley and DeSantis and a lot of these other candidates, the non-Trump candidates, have been trying to make the electability argument. I, if uh, I could win an election, a general election against Joe Biden. It's one thing to say that, but if she's able to demonstrate that in Iowa, New Hampshire, and these early states, that's going to go a long way to galvanizing people. In your interview with uh, Sununu, I thought he made a really good point in terms of, you said, should these other candidates get out? There's no mistaking we need to uh, coalesce behind one non-Trump candidate, but that can, that can be after some of these early states. And Sununu suggested potentially, even as we get closer to Super Tuesday, when Republican voters see a binary choice between someone like Nikki Haley and uh, former President Trump, I think it's going to be a no-brainer. People are going to see that it's time to turn the page, and she could actually uh, not just beat Donald Trump, but, but Joe Biden in the general. So uh, Governor DeSantis has been uh, upping his attacks on Donald Trump uh, in recent weeks. Um, and the other day he said that uh, Donald Trump will absolutely say uh, that Iowa was stolen if he loses Iowa, which is not going out on a limb. That's what, he, that's what Donald Trump did in 2016 against Ted Cruz. Uh, but uh, DeSantis went on to say, uh, that that is not necessarily, however, a threat to democracy. Take a listen. It's not a threat. I mean, what he did when Cruz won, he said it was rigged. Nobody believed that, but he did do it, and I think he would do the same thing. I mean, people know that's just how uh, how he operates. Um, Isn't that you know, the, the definition reality. of a threat to democracy, though? To challenge election rules? No, no, no. no. He, saying, complaining about it is not, is not the same thing um, at all. He complained about it. Thoughts? This is why he's losing. He's terrible at this. I'm sorry, he's just a terrible candidate. If you're going to say that Trump is going to undermine the results of the election and challenge them mm -hmm. uh, falsely, then follow through. And yes, of course he's a threat to democracy. Yes, he is. And, and so he says, well, he will do this. He did it last time, but it's really not a threat. to. He's just complaining. He's challenging. No, challenging is fine. You go to court or, you, you know, Trump did that 61 times. And lost every single one of them in, mm -hmm. in the 2020 election. So it just, this is why what do you think, just Alice? needs Look, to go uh, away. He's uh, terrible. You might be a little bit more charitable. Uh, we'll get uh, your take. I agree with the governor 100% that any race and election that Donald Trump loses from here to eternity, he will say is rigged. I disagree with him, however, in terms of it's, when he does this, it's not just complaining. He right. is questioning the integrity of our election, and that is a threat to democracy. So I think it's much different when you have Donald Trump. Anytime he uh, wins, everything is fine. There's nothing to see here. However, when he loses, he looks at this as, as widespread election fraud, and that's simply not true. Just to break from script here, you worked for Ted Cruz at the time, didn't I you, did. in 2016? And, it, I, I, and I, it was completely on the up and up. Right. Ted Cruz won Iowa fair and square. Do you think that in retrospect, and obviously everybody's so much wiser in hindsight, but do you think in retrospect, Republicans and Ted Cruz should have made a bigger deal out of the fact that Donald Trump was, without any basis in reality, challenging the results of the Iowa caucus? Well, look, you know, having been there and, and we were all there, we, we did. We, we said those claims were not true. And we said we won uh, fair and square. And we said that this was uh, an election of integrity. But at that, at that time, you're looking to New Hampshire, you're looking to yeah. South Carolina, you're looking to, to stay ahead of the game, uh, the election calendar. 
we called attention to his his fraud and lies back at the, back during the yeah. during the day, and he just continued to do so. And and again, every single time he does it, it's a threat to democracy and it's an insult to the election workers that work really hard to make sure that we do have uh, free and fair elections in the country. Al Stewart, Paul Begala, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Just days before the Iowa caucuses, I will have an, the honor of, along with Dana Bash, moderating a CNN Republican presidential debate that will be on January 10th. It will be in Des Moines at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we know that Haley will be there. We know that DeSantis will be there. We will see who else qualifies. Donald Trump, come on in. The water's warm. Chances are you know someone's sick right now, and if they have COVID, what is the guidance these days? Should they isolate? For how long? Is contact tracing still a thing? What about social distancing? We'll have some answers as COVID cases start to go up again, and many of us get, rather, get ready to gather for the holidays. That's next. In our national lead now, U.S. airlines are expecting more than 2.8 million people every day to fly for the holidays. Between December 21st and New Year's Eve, the FAA says it will take at least 260,000 flights to handle all this air traffic. Today, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg warned that bad weather could cause some hiccups. The FAA has opened dozens of new East Coast routes to try and keep air traffic moving smoothly. In our health lead today, a spike in COVID infections could throw a wrench into the holidays for some unlucky families. The CDC is warning about a new subvariant, which is the fastest growing strain of the virus. CNN's Meg Terrell is with us. And, and Meg, just for the record, I got my COVID shot, just FYI, so you don't have to ask. What is this new variant? And is it making people sicker than previous uh, kinds of COVID? Well, then you are one of only about 18% of U.S. adults who has gotten that updated COVID booster. So the uh, encouragement is everybody should follow your lead. Um, This new variant is called JN.1. And it does not make us sicker than other COVID variants, at least as of the data we have right now. But unfortunately, it does have a growth advantage over previous variants. And so that's why, of course, it's taking off in the United States. It accounted for about 4% of cases back in November. And then over the past month, that's grown to more than 20% of cases. And it has become dominant already in the Northeast. And that's expected to happen for the entire U.S. and around the world within the coming weeks. Uh, And so here in the U.S. right now, we are already in a spike of COVID. If you look at wastewater levels, which is sort of a leading indicator of where cases are going to go, we are at levels that the CDC says are very high and they're getting up there to where we saw last winter. And of course, what we really worry about is severe disease and hospital capacity. Uh, We are starting to see uh, hospitalizations getting up into the medium to high levels, even in some counties. That's the yellow and the orange uh, levels. And the CDC is warning that hospitalizations have been rising from COVID, Jake. If someone tests positive for COVID, what's the protocol? Should they quarantine? Uh, I mean, it's no longer a national public health emergency. So what's the latest guidance? Well, the guidance is the same as when it was a national public health emergency. Uh, Essentially, if you test positive for COVID, the guidance is you should isolate for five days, um, and including from people in your household if you can. Of course, if you've got kids or you're caring for somebody, that can be difficult. The guidance is to wear a high-quality mask if you have to be around others, either in your household or if you have to go out. And if you have more moderate or severe symptoms, the CDC says you actually should isolate for 10 days. Uh, Of course, testing can change those uh, limits. If you're still testing positive, you should still continue to isolate. Uh, And of course, if you start to test negative, that should give you a good go ahead as well. Does the current COVID vaccine, which is currently surging through my body, does it offer any protection against this new subvariant? 
It does. That's the good news. Um, even though this new variant is expected to be more immunovasive, and that's why it potentially is spreading more easily against severe disease, which is the thing we want vaccines to protect us against primarily, uh, it does seem to still continue to provide good protection. All right. Meg Terrell, thanks so much. What could be a major development in the Jeffrey Epstein saga, a judge ordering the names of more than 150 of Epstein's alleged associates and victims be released. What led to this new ruling? What's in that black book? That's next. In our Law and Justice lead, the names of more than 150 of Jeffrey Epstein's alleged associates and victims will be made public early next year after a ruling by a federal judge. Epstein was indicted in 2019 on federal charges of operating a sex trafficking ring in which he allegedly sexually abused dozens of underage girls. He died by suicide while awaiting trial. Let's bring in CNN's Gene Casares. Uh, Gene, why did the judge decide to release these names now, or at least in the pending weeks? It's really the only unresolved issue of that civil suit by Virginia Giuffre. It was settled in 2017. But this has been the outstanding issue, and now the judge issued it. And why? Because mainly most of these names have already availed themselves to the public. They're in the public domain in one form or fashion. So the judge said they're allowed. First of all, let's show everybody what names are going to be released. That's a lot of them. First of all, alleged victims of Jeffrey Epstein, people that have done interviews or they testified in trial or somehow or other their names are in the public domain. Alleged associates of Jeffrey Epstein, those that he worked with, maybe they testified at trial, maybe their names were in a police report. Detectives and assistant state attorneys, some of those names have been redacted in documents. Um, A public figure, they say, who was one of many names in the address book of Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, No salacious activity at all. A lot of the names are are associated with, they say, no salacious activity. Uh, Journalist names were redacted. An individual who allegedly recruited young women to give massages to Jeffrey Epstein, that name was mentioned in the trial, so it can come out. An individual whose role has been widely reported in the media, they say that this person already was criminally prosecuted abroad for sex trafficking. And that name, and much media attention, they say that name will become public. So if someone's name is on this list of associates, okay, what does that mean? What exactly are we going to be learning here? Because I think what everybody wants to know is he was running the sex trafficking ring with underage girls. Who are the bad guys here? Who are the, the victims? They, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they should, they should have their privacy if they want it. But who are the bad guys that he was providing this client service for? Well, I think a couple that I just mentioned, you know, allegedly recruiting them for the back rubs and massages for Epstein, one that was already prosecuted for sex trafficking uh, abroad. But a lot of those associates, it says no salacious information. So in other words, they're just names. Names that were a part of the trial or they've availed themselves and now they're going to be public. But here's what I think can be gained from this. The documents are coming out. So you're not just going to have a name. You're going to see alleged facts or factual scenarios surrounding that name for the first time. And that may give more understanding, more information than we've ever had before. Can people object and prevent their names from being made public? Is that something I'm just wondering all the Absolutely. all the bad guys watching right now calling their Absolutely. lawyers? They can? Yeah, and these are 
Jane Doe's and John Doe's, right? Males and females. They've got 14 days to be able to appeal this. If they do, then it will go on. If they don't appeal this, and many of the entries say that they are, they are not moving. They already ha- were given notice that this was going to happen, and nobody has voiced an opposition at this point, according to the documents. If it goes forward, everything will get in order in an early 2024. The documents with the, re- with the unveiled names public for the first time will come out. Well, I think we all agree we'd like to see the names of the bad guys yes. here. Gene Casares, thank you so much. Thanks. In February, an international swimming competition and qualifier for the 2024 Summer Olympics in Paris would be held in Doha. Doha, the capital of Qatar. But now the International Olympic Committee is facing some pressure from an organization representing Israeli and Jewish athletes to move the event out of Qatar over understandable safety concerns in a letter to the IOC, the No to Doha campaign writes, quote, today the leaders of the Palestinian terrorist death cult Hamas live in Doha, Qatar, where they enjoy protection and support from the local government. No Jew could justifiably feel safe while competing in Doha, unquote. Let's bring in Eric Spitz. He's spearheading the No to Doha campaign. Eric, thanks uh, for being here. So your daughter, I should mention, of course, you're not related to Mark Spitz for anybody out there wondering. Your daughter is a member of the Israeli women's swim team. Is her safety the reason you started this campaign, the No to Doha campaign? It's her safety as well as the unfairness of the situation in the sense that regardless of whether they decide to go or not, they're being put in an awful situation. How would you like it if you were a world-class athlete being asked to attend an event and perform at your peak while having the Hamas leadership around the corner. Yeah. In an op-ed, you write, quote, like all Israeli athletes, they traveled incognito for fear that revealing the country they compete for would make them a terrorist target. No passport stamps and no team gear or logos on bags, unquote. What's it like for your daughter? She's focused on competing. She's focused on representing her country. But she also has to struggle with this deci- with first of all hi- having to hide who, he- who she is, and then also this decision to possibly not compete because she doesn't want to go to a country where Hamas is staying at the local Four Seasons. It's difficult. It's difficult on all of them. And really, the most challenging thing for them is that they're not getting great information from either the IOC, from World Aquatics, or even from their Israeli coaches who seem that they don't really know what's going on. And what's your reaction to the, to this, to the general premise that Qatar is playing a significant role in the release of Israeli hostages held by Hamas? As I'm sure you've, you've heard, there are people in, in Israel and the U.S. who say, I understand concerns you might have, but Qatar is helping uh, right now. They're helping getting, in terms of negotiations, helping to get hostages out. So they are playing a constructive role. For sure except they also operate Al Jazeera in Arabic, which has over the years been held liable for starting some of the riots that you're seeing all over the world. So yes, they're saying things and yes, they've done a great job of sports washing or whitewashing their image by investing in things and putting money into universities and creating the Doha wing of the Brookings Institute. But can you really be sure that you're safe 
and secure inside a country that is known as the global mecca of terrorism. And what's the alternative for your daughter if she ultimately feels like she wouldn't feel safe in Doha? That's really the question on the part or up to the IOC and World Aquatics. There are alternatives. They can make other events, qualifying events. If they really wanted to do something, they could make an event in Israel or a special event for the affected athletes. Instead, they're clamming up and not telling anybody anything. So you've had no response from the IOC at all? Right. And not only have I had no response, but there are several journalists who are now following this story who've done real work trying to get to World Aquatics, trying to get to IOC, trying to get to the Israeli Olympics with no avail. Yeah. Eric Spitz, thank you so much. We, should appre- we appreciate it. And we should note that we also reached out to the IOC and they did not, request, they did not respond to our request for comment. Uh, Eric, uh, good to see you and good luck to your daughter. Google just settled a lawsuit for hundreds of millions of dollars and you might be able to get a piece of that. Stay with us. In the money lead, you could be in for money from Google. Well, not much, but money's money. Roughly 102 million U.S. consumers could get a cut of the $630 million Google must pay in a settlement. Google has to dish out another $70 million to states. An antitrust lawsuit argued that Google's app store was an illegal monopoly that, quote, unfairly raised prices and blocked developers from selling products in other app stores. No need to file a claim and to cash in here. Those who are eligible will get a whopping $2 or perhaps more, depending on how much they spent at the Google Play store between August 16, 2016 and September 30th of this year. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Another live look at that volcanic eruption happening right now in Iceland, the largest in this region in the last two years. The volcano is spewing magma fountains nearly 100 feet high, releasing toxic gases, not unlike some members of Congress. The bright orange lava flow is visible some two miles away. CNN's Fred Pleitkin is still there on the ground. He has a live report that's coming up in the Situation Room. You will not want to miss it. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.